0: To the book of James. From a bird's eye perspective, if you were to look at the New Testament in its totality, uh, essentially there is a systematic revelation of what we would kind of call this body of truth that makes up uh, the New Testament scriptures. You have, first of all, the Gospels. And the purpose of the Gospels is to set forth Jesus Christ, the Savior, in his incarnation and then in his ministry and then in his death and resurrection in the cross uh, that would then um, pave the way for salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. And that's why they're called the Gospels, because essentially uh, Jesus is the Gospel. And so you have Jesus set forth in the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark Luke and John, and that really is uh, the foundation of what the New Testament uh, truth is for us. But then from there, you have the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, what it gives to us is then the history of the early church, the first part of that first century church when the Spirit was just first poured out and the New Testament gospel began to live in the hearts and lives of real people like you and me. And so that's given to us in the book of Acts, as that history is laid out, what the Holy Spirit did through the church in its inception, at its beginning. And then from there, the third segment of the New Testament is what we call the epistles. And that's just a fancy word that means the letters. And so uh, from the book of Romans, which follows Acts, all the way through to the book of um, well, I mean, kind of in a technical sense, it goes all the way really to the book of Revelation. But I'm going to say for our sake to the book of Hebrews from Romans all the way through Hebrews. You have these letters that were written by various apostles and men of God that uh, revealed to us as they were inspired by God, the truths of God. And so what the epistles are is teaching or doctrine. And so that we can now take the gospel, which is Jesus, and then the history, which is how it played out at the beginning, and now we can put on top of that the lens of truth that makes it what it is so that we can understand it. And so Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and so on all the way through Hebrews, they lay down for us the doctrine or the teaching of what the New Testament actually is and means. So that's the doctrine or the teaching. But then when you get to the book of James, things change just a little bit. There's a slight difference between James, Peter, and John, which is kind of what's next as we look from James forward. Um, James, Peter, and John isn't as much doctrine. It is There is doctrine in it, there's teaching in it, but really the purpose is exhortation or encouragement or instruction that is to be applied. And that's really what James, what's behind James and Peter and John in their writings, is that they're writing to exhort the believers to kind of light a fire under us a little bit. To say, okay, now you're in this faith, and now you understand this faith, so now live this faith. And that's the purpose of James, Peter, and John in their writings. And so this segment of the New Testament is really exhortation to you and me. Direct, applicational instruction into this Christian life that we live. And then, of course, finally, the last segment of the New Testament is the book of Revelation, which then gives to us the culmination of how this New Testament era will come to a close. And so that's the bird's eye view, really, of the New Testament. Now, as we come to the book of James, again, there is a shift that's taking place here. Uh, It has a different tone, obviously very different than the book of Hebrews, which had a different purpose, but it has a different tone even than the letters of Paul that we had gone through before that, um, in that now we're not uncovering truth any longer, but now we're applying truth. And so we have the book of James. Well, who was the man, James, who penned the words that we have before us? There are a few different people in the New Testament that bore the name James. There was, first of all, James, who was the brother of John, who were the sons of Zebedee. You've heard of Peter and Andrew, James and John. And and when we say James, typically that's the James that people first think of, because he was a prominent figure in the ministry of Jesus, a prominent character throughout the Gospels. We read a lot about that James, what he said, what he did, who he was, and that's the James that we're the most familiar with. But that is not the James that wrote the book of James. That James, James the son of Zebedee, was dead already by the time the letter of James was written. James, son of Zebedee, was the first martyr in the early church. He was killed first. In Acts chapter 12, we read the account of the persecution that arose in the days of the early church, and it tells us there, right at the beginning of the chapter, that he, Herod, killed James and that he had Peter arrested. And so James was the first martyr of the church. He was dead by the time this was written, So that's not the James that we're dealing with. There was another James who was also an apostle, and he's called uh, James the son of Alphaeus. So that was just kind of making a distinction between him and James the son of Zebedee. Now, James the son of Alphaeus was also called James the Less. And we might think for a moment that that was because he was less than the other James who was always kind of there in, you know, the starring role with Jesus. No, no, no. The idea is that he was shorter. (laughs) And so James, son of Altheus, also an apostle, was one of Jesus' other apostles, but he also is not most likely the author of the book of James. There's a third James in the New Testament. And that is James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. That is, he was the biological son of Joseph and Mary. Jesus was the biological son of Mary, but not Joseph. Thus, he was Jesus' half-brother. But we're told in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, there's a list given of Jesus' brothers. Uh, When Jesus had just begun his teaching ministry up in the north... He had given some teaching and some of the people that were there were puzzled with the fact that Jesus was saying these things because they knew him. And so they said, is not this the carpenter's son? And is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are there now here with us? Well, then whence has this man all these things? And so we we read that Jesus had a brother a half-brother whose name was James. Now, what we learn as we read the Gospels is that Jesus' brothers, his half-brothers, biologically or legally, that that were there with him on earth, that they were not believers in him prior to the resurrection. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, In verse uh, 21, Jesus had had, um, just finished teaching or choosing the 12 apostles, and it was the very first time that Jesus taught in a house in the region of Galilee. And we're told in Mark chapter 3 that there were so many people that were gathered there in the house that no one could get into the house. And in verse 21 of chapter 3, it says that when his friends heard of it, that is, Jesus' friends, it says that they went out to lay hold on him, for they said that he is beside himself. They thought that Jesus was out of his mind at that time. Now, just a few verses later in the same scene, these friends go and they get Jesus' mother and his brothers to come and try to talk some sense into him. And we're told in verse 31 of the same chapter, it says that there came then his brethren and his mother and standing without, they sent unto him calling him. And then the multitude said, "You know, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are looking for you. And Jesus said, Who are my mothers and brothers but these that hear the word of God and keep it? And he didn't give them the time of day. But then in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 5, it tells us plainly that his brothers did not believe in him, that they did not put their faith or their trust in Jesus while he was yet on the earth. Now, In the book of Galatians, chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is describing his testimony and what God had done with him in the early days of his ministry. And he describes the first time that he went up to Jerusalem to consult with the Apostles about the things that he was teaching. Paul had kind of a controversial message. And so he went there to make sure that they were in agreement with the things that he was teaching as he went around planting churches. And he tells us there in the book of Galatians, in chapter one, verse 18, he says that after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and I abode with him for 15 days. But other of the apostles saw I none, watch this, except for James the Lord's brother. And so sometime after the resurrection of Jesus, James, the half-brother of Jesus, put his faith in his brother, his half-brother, for salvation and became a leader in the early church. Just a little bit further into the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, as Paul describes the conversation that took place between them there. He said, And when James, Cephas, which is Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and that they would go to the circumcision or to the Jews. And so James, the half-brother of Jesus got saved, and then became a leader in the early church, working with the apostles there in the city of Jerusalem. Now, here's where things get confusing with all the Jameses. In Luke chapter 6, verse 16, we are told that James the less, that is James the son of Alphaeus, the apostle, that he had a brother named Jude. The verse could come up on the screen. They're waiting for me to read it. I'm not going to. It's a short verse. You can read it and see. But James had a brother whose name was Jude. That's James the apostle, James the less. Now, here's why that's confusing. Because James, the half-brother of Jesus, also had a brother named Jude. So really... Things haven't changed much. You know how today it's like you can go into a household and there's going to be someone named Joe, someone named Mike, someone named Bill, you know, same thing back then. It was James, Judah, you know, (laughs) Mark. The names were all similar then as they are now. And that makes it a smidget inconclusive as to who wrote the book of James. Because when you read the book of Jude, which follows the first, second, and third John, Jude identifies himself as Jude, the brother of James. And nobody gives any identification marks beyond those, uh, those markers right there. Now, having said all of that, by way of confusing you, ten out of ten Bible scholars all agree that the author of the book of James is James, the half-brother of Jesus that he would be the one that would write the words that we have uh right here. And and they use for that many things that were recorded through in, in the the early chronicles of church history uh, and who he was, the reputation that he had and what he did in his ministry uh there. So that's the approach that we're taking. Uh though we might get to heaven and we might be told, Hey, you were wrong on that, and we can say, Okay, uh we'll eat that error, you know, um we still get in, right? <laughs> If we get that wrong, you know, um, but but most likely this is the half brother of Jesus who is writing this. Now, who was James the man, the half brother of Jesus? Notice in verse one the way that he introduces himself. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this right here is a statement that is dripping with the fruit of the Holy Spirit within it. And I want you just to think about it for one moment. If you were the half-brother of God, how would you address yourself to someone who you were writing an authoritative letter to? I mean, if you want to know how you would do it, just look at your resume. How do you address yourself in your resume? You're like, I'm going to put myself forward as the most qualified to make the statements that I'm about to make. You know, when we put every title, every letter, every degree, everything that we can say to, 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 to you know, kind of set ourselves above and apart and all this. Well, who could speak a higher thing than to say, James, the brother of God, <laughs> you know, grew up with him. But he doesn't do that. He takes his whole life into account and he thinks about the 30 years that he lived side by side with his brother. And he thinks about all the experiences that they had in their youth. He thinks about all the things that he heard and the things that he observed. And then all the things that he saw with his own eyes throughout the ministry of Jesus when he served and when he healed and when he lived. And then he took all of the the sum total of all that experience and then after the death and resurrection and putting his faith in Christ and then the way that God used him and the way that God met him and the way that Jesus himself would meet with James. After the resurrection, as, as he would come inside and actually live inside of his heart. And the familiarity of who Jesus was resonated with him. And after serving God for the years that he did in the way that he did, when he takes pen in hand to then write a letter to the church, he begins it by saying that if, I, if I'm going to tell anybody who I am, and if I'm going to leave any mark in terms of my identity here on earth, then let it be that I'm James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no greater evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a child of God is that we become absolutely nothing but His property. And it's a mark of maturity and a mark of reality and a mark of intimacy and a mark that we know Him and a mark that we're being changed into His image and His likeness and who He is. To become absolutely nothing. And to echo with our lives the words of John the Baptist who said, He must increase but I must decrease. And what a testimony for the half-brother of our Lord to write to the church and to say, I'm nothing more than a servant of his, regardless of anything else that I could say concerning my credentials or boast concerning my resume. Tradition tells us that his nickname was James the Need, And the reason for that was because he was a man whose highest priority in life was to be given to prayer. We're told that he spent hours, sometimes eight, nine, ten hours a day in prayer. Some traditions say that when they tried to put him into a tomb, that they had trouble stretching out his legs because they were were so trained in that kneeling position that they were almost locked in it and they couldn't straighten out his legs even after he had passed away. He was a man very definitely of prayer. As we read his letter, we understand that he was, personality-wise, a man who was clear, he was pointed, he was direct with his words, he said what he meant, he didn't mince anything, he didn't sugarcoat anything, and we'll become very uncomfortable with that as we move through and listen to the things that he had to say. But he was a man very concerned with the truth and with the reputation of God and with his glory. Now, the theme of the book, as we go through it, is visible faith. That is, that if we claim to have faith in God, then that faith should look like something in our everyday life. That it's more than what we just say, but it's something also that we live out. There are five themes that are interwoven throughout this letter that James wrote to the church. The highest of the five is the Christian and our relationship with trials and and temptation. It's something that he spends much time on. He begins the book in chapter one by talking almost exclusively about that concept, the fact that we suffer trials and temptations as Christians. And then he ends the book in the same way, talking about Job and the trials that he went through and how we're to handle them when we go through them. And so he spends much time talking about trials and temptations. Prayer is a major theme in the book of James. Five times in this short letter, he makes reference to the fact that we have access to God through prayer. Some of the most uh, pointed and clear and helpful uh, verses concerning prayer are given to us by James. It's James that says, and we'll hear it tonight, that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. It was James that said, you have not because you Yes, a very famous passage talking about prayer. James talks about prayer in the context of our being in the will of God. When he talks about, you know, don't say that you're gonna go here and do this and make money and then come back, but say, if it be God's will, we're gonna go here and do this. If we, if you don't do that, then you're in sin because you're not walking in tandem with Him. You know, prayer in the dailyness of life. He talks about prayer for the sick. And he talks about when someone is sick, let them call for the elders of the church and pray. And the prayer of faith will heal them which is sick. And then he speaks of prayer in general at the very close of his epistle when he talks about Elijah, who was a man who prayed when he needed direction and leading from God. And so James the Camelkneed, a man of prayer, knew the power of prayer. And he talks to us much concerning prayer. Another great theme of the book of James is the Tongue. He has a lot to say about this little three pound piece of meat that we have between our cheeks. And he has things to say to us that are not so easy to hear, but very definitely need to be said and need to be heeded by the Christian. Another great theme of James is the heart, is the part of our lives that no one can see. Not the outwardness of what we profess, but the inwardness of who we are. Are we real on the inside? And James, a man who deals much with the heart. And then finally, uh, the feet. And that is what we do with our lives, that our faith should go somewhere and it should look like something. And so a very powerful book. It's very short, only five chapters, but he has much to say to us in it concerning this Christian life that we live. Now, as we look at the text of chapter one tonight, James talks to us about the reality of trials and temptation in the Christian life. And so we begin. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Now, the book of James is most likely the first book that was written of the New Testament canon. It was most likely written either prior to or just after the gospel went to the Gentiles by the hand of Peter. When the Apostle Paul got saved, his name was Saul before he gave his life to the Lord. He had kind of authored and ushered in a wave of persecution against the church that was in Jerusalem that was so violent And so treacherous that it caused the Christians that had been in Jerusalem and in Israel to scatter all the way throughout the land that was Israel in those days and also throughout the Roman Empire of that day. They did that just to save their own lives because the persecution had become so heavy. And many of them left impoverished. Many of them left everything that they had behind They went into these places not knowing why they were going or where they were going or what they would do once they got there. And they were confused. Well, if God loves me, then why is this happening to me? And so James has them very close to his heart when he writes this. And he knows that they're thinking these things. And so he begins to write to them now concerning the trials that they're going through and the purpose of God and the place of God in those things within their lives. And so he says, "To the twelve tribes which are now scattered abroad, abroad I bring greeting." And then he gets right into it in verse two. He says, "My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations." The word temptations uh, is, is translated either trials or temptations. And really, the two things, though they are separate, uh, they're very closely related and sometimes they are one and the same. And the first thing that he tells the Christian, you and I, concerning the reality of trials in our lives is that we are to count it or reckon it or, um, you know, kind of uh, set it in our minds to be a a thing to rejoice about when we go through diverse types of trials and tribulations. Now, can I get an amen on that? (laughs) Most of us don't think of trials and tribulations that we go through in our lives as the source of rejoicing within us. We would look at this as unrealistic optimism. In a way, because we're saying, well, nobody rejoices when they go through various trials and temptations. Well, oftentimes the reason we don't rejoice over the trials and temptations, aside from the pain and the headache that they cause us, is because we don't recognize them for what they truly are or the purpose that they serve within our lives. Now, what exactly is a trial? According to Proverbs chapter 17, verse three, Solomon, the wise man wrote these words. He said the refining pot for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tries or tests or proves the heart. And right in that little verse that's just a couple of words long and only takes a second to read, there's a world of understanding that's revealed to us there concerning the purpose of trials and difficulties that we face within our lives. What do you do to gold and to silver to both prove its authenticity and also to refine its value? You heat it up. You put it in a refiner's pot. Or you put it in a furnace. And because it's a precious metal and it has value and it's lasting, it can withstand heat. And so you turn the heat up on these metals in a furnace or in a pot and you bring them to a temperature where the things that are holding it together begin to let loose and break down. And what is in a solid state and is stable, begins to liquefy and break down into an unstable, at least apparently so, unstable state. And so these these grips begin to let go, and the substance begins to liquefy, and it becomes hot. There's heat, there's pressure, there's uncomfort, discomfort that's going on in this thing. But what's happening in the process is that what is valuable is being separated from what is worthless. And so you have rock, you have other uh, elements, other metals it, it, that are kind of tucked into this thing that don't belong there or that, that compromise its value or its strength or its worth or its beauty. And as the heat is applied to it, those things are revealed to be present by the heat and then they're removed because of it. The, the way is open for them to be removed. And what Solomon says is that just like gold and silver are refined by heat, God does the same thing in our hearts. That is that God sees things that are valuable and of precious substance that are within us, but he also sees things in us that are very much flawed and that are very much worthless. And the way that God separates and distinct, makes distinction between what is valuable and what is worthless is that he brings heat and pressure into our lives. That's what we call a trial. And so a trial comes. Heat comes into our life. And when the heat comes, it is both proving inside of us that there's something there that's valuable and real, but it's also improving us Because it's burning away the weakness of those things in us that don't belong there and that have no value. And so the trial that God brings into our life are proving the reality and the quality of what we are spiritually. And they're also improving us because they're there to remove those things that don't belong within our lives. That's a trial. Now, a temptation is oftentimes accompanying the trial that comes. And here's why. What is a temptation? A temptation is when the devil comes in and the devil exploits the vulnerability that our weakness allows and he tempts us to sin in the moment of our weakness. He attacks that point of weakness and he tries to weasel his way into our lives and to get us to sin in that time. And so the temptation oftentimes comes at the point of trial because the temptation is what capitalizes upon that weakness. Now, what does this look like? When Jesus was tested, when Jesus was tried, remember 40 days, 40 nights, no food, no water. And it says that after that he was hungry and the devil came to tempt him or to test him. It's the great trial of Jesus. It's there for us to observe and and understand as we see it happen in the life of the Son of God. And it was there, that trial, for the same exact reason that you and I are tried, both to prove the quality and exploit the weakness, if there would be one, but there wasn't. And so the, the heat, the pressure, the hunger, all of that was there upon him in that time. The aloneness, the weakness physically, the hunger that he was feeling, all of that was there present in it. And it was proving whether or not he was what he claimed to be. And so the heat being applied to the life of the son of God. Now, the temptation came when Satan then sought to exploit that weakness and he asked him to do something that would take the pressure off of the trial that he was then feeling. He said, if you're the son of God, take this bread, this rock and turn it into bread. You have the authority, you have the power to do that. So, and there's nothing sinful about bread, just, you, you know, go ahead, take the pressure off in this thing. And Jesus, of course, he beat that temptation. He said, no, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's the will of God for me to be feeling this right now, uh, and I'm not going to do that. And so Satan's desire was to seek to expose weakness or to bring disqualification, which he could not do because Jesus uh, didn't have any weakness and he would not be disqualified. And so the trial there, to prove and to purify the temptation, Satan's attempt to exploit and to reveal the weakness. Now, the temptation is a very important part in God's process because it's the temptation that's going to show to us whether or not there's strength or whether or not there's vulnerability in us where that weakness or that fault line is and giving into the temptation will expose the flaw. In the whole thing, and then this whole process kind of begins again as we fail or we succeed, and God uh, continues His work within our lives. And so trials are a reality. Trials come from God. Now, notice the word that He uses in verse 2. It's a a terrible word there. You never want to see this word. It's the word when. You see that word? (laughs) Do you know what that word means? It it means it's coming. (laughs) It has been said that every Christian is in one of three places. We are either in a trial, or we are coming out of a trial, or we are going into a trial. And that at any given time, we are in one of those three places within our lives, because it's just reality that we're going to go through those things. But we're told by James here, listen, Christian, here's your perspective, is that when those trials come into your life, and they will come into your life, Job said, as surely as sparks fly upward, man is born to trouble. We are going to face troubles in this world. He says, when it comes, count it all joy. Embrace it with joyful hilarity is what it means. That when you see that coming or when you feel that coming, that pressure rising in your life, rather than drawing back in fear, draw forward in rejoicing. And here's why he gives us the reason why in verse 3 he says knowing this that the trying of your faith worketh patience now the word patience means endurance to 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 have patience in a trial is to it means to be able to endure under the pressure of that trial, and he says that when you're in a trial, what that trial is going to produce is it's going to produce endurance or the ability to stay in that place that you're in. Have you ever seen um, someone out in in, in any time really, and they're running on the side of the road, you know, or, or on a track or something like that? And then sometimes you see them at this time of year, like in the middle of winter, and they're out and they're running. <laughs> you know? and, and you drive by them and you look and something inside of you says, what on God's creation would inspire a person to do that? I mean, that person looks like they're running for pleasure. <laughs> I mean, can those two things even be put into the same sentence, running and pleasure? The answer is absolutely, yes, it can. Because he, here's what happens, and I know this because I'm a runner, so I'm, I'm actually not speaking to you of something that I don't know anything about. I don't know everything. I know a little bit. But, but I know this. I know that when you run and it hurts, you don't like it. It feels like a trial. You're like, I would rather be doing anything. I would rather be doing math. I would I would rather do anything than feel what I'm feeling right now while I'm running up this 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 hill or, 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 or across this whatever. You know, I, I hate this feeling, you know, and so you do it, but you endure it and, and you're motivated by something, you know, I need to get in shape or I want to say I did it or want to run a marathon someday, you know, whatever the motive is, you push through it and you do it. You endure. And what happens is that that pain produces endurance within your life. Because a time or two or three or ten later when you go run, you realize suddenly, as you're in a certain place, that, hey, I've been here before and I remember being here and wishing I was doing math. But now I'm here and I'm doing this and I'm actually enjoying what I'm doing. Because what you discover is that heat, though with pain, is not pleasurable, heat without pain is pleasurable that there's something to it. And so what you realize is that, wow, these people that are out running actually enjoy what they're doing. They like what they're doing. Now, I do it with my kids. My three oldest, we run. You know, it's kind of just become one of those things that we like to do together. And from the time that they were that they were little, we would go running together. And I love kind of doing it with them because, you know, I I run with them and they're just little and we're running up a hill. And I can tell them everything that's happening while it's happening. I say, right now you feel a burn, right? And I'll tell them where. And you feel like you're out of breath. You feel like you want to die. And you feel like you'd rather be doing homework, you know. And they're like, yeah, you know, that's exactly how I feel. And I'll tell them, listen, That's your body telling you that it can't. And I and I tell them, you have a choice right now. You can either let your body tell your mind what to do, or you can let your mind tell your body what to do. And I can guarantee you that if you tell your body what to do, your body will do what you ask of it. And I say, let's finish up this hill. And we finish up the hill. And it's been a joy to be able to do that with them over the years, to be able to train them that, yes, you can endure even though you're in a situation that hurts. And that one day, if you endure these situations that hurt, you're going to be in a situation that hurts, but you're not going to even feel the hurt of it. And someone's going to look into your life and say, how do you endure and do the things that you do? And you're going to say, I have no idea. But I am. Because patience produces endurance. And that's what James is saying to us. Count it all joy, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, lacking absolutely nothing. Listen, it isn't pleasant when you're going through the things that you're going through that are bringing trials into your life, but it very definitely is producing something within you that's profitable to you and that's lasting. Now, if we know that life is going to be filled with pain and sorrow and trouble and trial, then how valuable is it to know that we're being brought into a place where we're going to live a life that's filled with those things but that we don't need to experience the pain of it but that we can rise above those things? He says you will be perfect and complete. The word perfect means complete. It doesn't mean perfected like you'll never be sinless or that you'll never stumble. What it means is that God is adding something to you in the process of this trial. He's proving and improving what's in you. And it's serving a purpose. He's very definitely, very much in the midst of it. It's not pleasant, but the strength and the endurance and the ability that it produces in us is absolutely awesome. You say, well, how in the world do I see this happen in my life? Well, the the answer is very simple. He says, let patience have its perfect work. In other words, when you're in the trial or the difficulty that God has brought into your life for the purpose of this refinement, stay in there. Let the patience have its perfect work. Satan is going to come with all kinds of temptations to try to get you to relieve the pressure of what God has brought into your life within that time. Every one of us has a different pressure release switch. You know what yours is. When the stress rises up and when things are going uh tough against you and, and you know you feel like you want some relief from it, what is it that you find yourself turning to? What James is saying here is he's saying, Don't turn to those things. Let the pain and the pressure of that trial and of that trouble trouble have its work within your lives so that God can be successful in doing what he wants to do. What's your release switch? For some people they immediately turn to the bottle. For others, it's that they need a cigarette. For others, they go out and they buy something. For someone else, it's the refrigerator. For someone else, it's social media, or they turn on the computer and they get into things. On, you know, We all have things that we tend to when we want to escape the pressure of a trial. And what James is saying is, let patience have its perfect work. Learn the endurance of it. Hear the voice of your father running alongside of you on that difficult uphill climb saying, listen, you can let your body tell you what to do in this trial and circumstance, or you can tell your body what it's going to do. And if you tell your body what it's going to do, the strength will be there for you to do it. And you'll conquer this hill, and then you'll conquer bigger hills, and there's better things in life than to constantly hit the release switch so that you can escape the pressure of the trial. Our Father is with us in the middle of it. So now James goes on and what he does is he gives to us some practical things that we can do when, because there's always a when, when we go through trials. First of all, he says in verse five, he says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not. That is, he doesn't throw it back in your teeth and say, what'd you do with the wisdom I gave you last time? You know, that's what it means to upbraid. And it says that it shall be given him. Wisdom is the practicals of knowing what to do in a given situation. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. So it's taking what you know and then making the best choices with that information. And so in a trial, oftentimes we find ourselves in a place where we say, well, I'm in a situation, but I don't know what to do in that situation. And when that comes to us, we have a lot of choices. We can rely upon ourselves. We can rely upon the counsel of men or women, friends, people in our lives. Or we can turn it to God. And that's what James is saying that we should do in the middle of a trial. He's saying, listen, if you're in the middle of something hard, take it to God say, God, what do you want me to do in the middle of this? And here's the promise that he gives. He says that if you ask of God, that he will give you what it is that you're asking for without reproving you for asking, and he will give it liberally, meaning that he'll give it in abundance. Now, he qualifies that promise, and he sets a condition on it in verse 6. He says, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything from the Lord. And then he describes what wavering is in verse 8. He says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He says this, listen, He says, if you're in a trial, if you're suffering and you want to ask God what to do, he says, then you are absolutely welcomed in his presence with the hopeful expectation that he's going to answer that prayer. But one condition, if you come to God and ask for wisdom, then you come with a single steadfast mind before him and you ask him in faith with the will to obey what it is that he puts before you. What does it mean to waver or to be double-minded. First of all, it means to waffle back and forth between two opinions. Meaning that my approach in my trial is not resolutely set upon seeking God's help. God is an option, but he's not the option. He's an option. And so it looks like this. I think, okay, let me first of all weigh out all my own options in this. And see how I might counsel myself and navigate my way through this situation. And so we go and we write down, you know, everything. And, okay, these are all the factors and this is everything that plays into it. And I could do this. I could go Avenue A, Avenue B. I could do, I could say this, you know, work the whole thing out. If I do this, this will happen. Then this will happen. Chain reaction. You know, and we go through the, and then we say, all right, well, I kind of like those options. But let me just see maybe what God has to say. And so, you know, we ask God Then we say, okay, God, what what would you have me to do in this? But in our mind, we're not seeking God because whatever he says, that's what I'm going to do. We're seeing if God says what I want God to say in this situation, then I'll do what God wants me to do. But otherwise, I'm going to keep my options open and, and remain flexible in this thing. God says, don't come to me that way and ask that way. One of the interesting things about my uh, position, what I get to do for the Lord, is in uh, the counseling room. And it's an interesting thing to have uh, people come and, 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 and they're going through very, uh, very real and very difficult things within their lives. And they're, they're, they're seeking help. They need help because of the situation. And, and the interesting thing for me is to have them come and to, to lay it out. And then for me to bring them to the word of God and say, well, in, in, in light of everything that I understand about God and his way and his word and what you're saying to me, this is the perspective that I can give to your situation and this is, this is what, what God would, would say. Or this is how this played out when this happened to David. Or this is what, you know, should be. And then what I get to do is I get to sit back and I get to watch the decisions that they make after, you know, seeking the counsel or asking from the thing. And what I have found, just by way of very broad brush observation, I mean, I'm painting with a broom, but I would say that 90% of the, of the people that come for counsel in spiritual things come for an opinion. It's just an opinion. What is, what is God's opinion about what, what I'm doing right now or the way that I should do this whole thing? And if, if they like it, then they'll do it. But they, they very, very rarely do people come to God uh, or even to the counseling office with the mindset that whatever God says in His Word, that's the way I'm going to go through this whole thing. Very seldom does that happen, and God says that that's a double-minded person. They're wavering. They're they're halfway. They they're halfway their own, and they're halfway God's, and and they're going to bear the fruit of that out in the path uh, that they've taken. They, he says that a double-minded man is unstable. In all of his ways. Another thing that God desires when he says that we're to ask in faith is that when we ask him for wisdom in a situation is that we're to believe very firmly that he's going to supply the answer to that prayer. That we stand upon the word that he gives of promise. The word is that if we ask, he gives. And so if I come to God and I ask him for wisdom, he expects that I'm going to stand upon the fact that he's going to supply that wisdom. And he expects me to wait until he does. The X in this equation, the unknown, is not the if of whether or not God's going to give the answer. The X is the when, <laughs> isn't it? We wish that we would ask and that the wisdom would be there. Boom, just like that. <laughs> oh, thank you, Lord. And sometimes he does. Those are the best times. But sometimes that wisdom might not come for quite some time. And he expects that we're going to wait until he supplies the answer and that we're going to stand upon our faith in him until the time that it comes. And so he says, ask in faith. And so when we're in a trial, we can come to God. Another thing that we can do is that we can rejoice in the equality of God. Look at verse nine. He says, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. But the rich... And that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withers the grass and the flower thereof falls, and the grace of the fashion of it perishes, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Now, the purpose of James saying these things is not to hurl condemnation and woe upon those that are of means people that have resources materially. But what he's doing rather is he's encouraging both the poor and the rich that in the eyes of God, there is a perfect equality. That if you're a person here of low degree in the eyes of this world, then in the eyes of God, you are spiritually rich. You are his son, you're his daughter. And he looks at you in that light. One of the things that's hard for me to communicate to my kids is that I love them equally. Because I remember thinking that that was impossible. I mean, prior to having kids, I thought, well, it's impossible. You know, you can't love them equally. There's always going to be like a little bit more equal, you know, <laughs> until you have them. And then then there's it's impossible. You just cannot do it. And so I look at my five and I love them equally. Some of them drive me nuts. <laughs> but I love them with with such depth so much. You know, I look in their faces and I love them, you know. And God is the same way. And so we look at each other and we look, look at the talent and that person and look at how, how skillful they are and the gifts that God's given to them and just that it seems like everything they touch is successful and prosperous. Man, God is with that person. He's not with me. That's not true. God does not love with favoritism. Yeah, we're different. We have different, God has different plans for us. He gives different things to us. But in His eyes, The person of low degree is highly exalted and the person of high degree in their own eyes is greatly abased to a place of equality. And so that's an encouragement to you and I that it doesn't matter who we are in the body of Christ, that when we come to him, we have an audience with him because he looks at us with great equality and with great love. And then he says in verse 12, blessed is the man that endures temptation for when he is tried... That is, when he's been refined, proved, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to them that love him. And so what James tells us here, when you're going through a trial, not only are you to ask for wisdom and not only are you to rejoice in the equality that you have an audience with God, but you're to keep your eyes on the eternal purpose of the trial that you're facing. God is allowing you to go through what you're going through because he's using it to fashion for you an eternal crown that doesn't fade away, a crown of eternal life. And you're blessed if you receive that crown. Then he talks about the difference between a trial and a temptation in verse 13. He says, let no man say when he is tempted that I am tempted of God. That is, God is tempting me to sin. He says, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. God does not willingly tempt you to see what you're going to do. God allows temptation to come to you during a time of trial, to reveal the fault lines and the weaknesses, or to see your strength that you stand against it, but he is not the author of that temptation. You read the book of Job, and you understand this. God said to Satan, he said, have you considered my servant Job, that he's an upright man, that he loves righteousness and hates evil? And Job said, yeah, he is, but he's a mercenary. Anybody who you bless like that would serve you and love you. But let me take his stuff, and let me afflict his body, and he'll curse you to your face. And God said, okay, you can go this far, but no further. God set the boundaries, and we'll see. It was a trial, a test, and thus the trial came, Job stood and endured in the midst of it, he didn't curse God or give in to Satan's ploy, and he withstood the temptation, the temptation to sin, to curse God and die that was hurled upon him. God didn't tempt him, Satan tempted him, the trial God brought that brought the means of the temptation was for the good of Job. So we're not to say, well, God is tempting me in the middle of this thing. He says, no, God doesn't tempt you. Here's where temptation comes from. Verse 14, he says, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust. That's the issue. The issue is I have a weakness in me and a propensity towards my flesh and an affection for something that is forbidden that shouldn't be there in my life. That's the issue. If that lust wasn't there in me, then there could be no temptation. So it's not the temptation's fault, it's the lust's fault. It's what's in me that's at fault. Oftentimes, I'll I'll see someone or I'll talk to someone and they'll talk to me about uh, an anger issue that they have. You know, they can't control their temper. Sometimes it's not an anger issue. It's a a lust issue. Uh, Sometimes it's a covetous issue. You know, they want things. You know, different issues. We all have issues. I have issues. Uh, A lot of them. You know, every one of us has issues. And what our tendency is, you know, is that when, when those things come to the surface is that we want to blame someone else for those things. And so someone will get angry, you know, and they'll say, well, the reason I'm angry is because you are always, or if you didn't, or if you would just, then I wouldn't. And they want to blame someone else as the reason that they're angry. That's not the way it works. See, I'm not angry because of what you did. All you, what you did, did was it pulled out the anger that was already in me. And when these things come to the surface within our life, it isn't the outward thing that made it happen. It's the fact that that resides in me that brought it to the surface. So, you know, that thing just brought it to the surface. And so James says, every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and then he's enticed. And then watch what happens when the enticement comes. Then, when the lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Interesting word. You see that word conceived there? It means the exact same thing as when we use the word conceived to talk about a child that's being conceived in the womb of a woman. Conception happens when two things mate together that birth a third thing. And so you have the seed, and you have the egg, And when the seed finds an open door and it can mate with the egg, there is conception that takes place and it gives birth to a life which is a combination of the two things. And what James is saying is that sin is birthed when temptation finds a mate with my desire and what is birthed from that union then is what we call sin. So temptation isn't sin in and of itself and a desire isn't Sin in and of itself. But when those two things come together, then it brings forth sin. And then when sin is full grown, it always brings forth death. Now, there are actually three things that have to mate in order for sin to be born. And I'm thankful that there's three because it makes it a little bit harder sometimes for sin to come forth. Number one is the desire. That's the lust that James says is already in us. And we know what our lusts are. The second element is the temptation. The temptation is the outward impulse that comes to us, that that, 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 that kind of sows the thought into our mind that we would want to fulfill that lust. That's the temptation. But then the third thing is the opportunity. And so, really, it takes all three of those things coming together all at once in order for sin to happen. There's a lust or a desire, a temptation, and an opportunity, and all of those things come together. And when they do, that's a scary thing. When lust, temptation, and opportunity, when two of those things come together, it's bad. But when all three come together, you're in a real vulnerable place. Sometimes it happens, doesn't it? And he says that it brings forth sin, and when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. If you want to see this played out, I'll give you an assignment this week, is to read Genesis chapters 37 and thirty-eight. In chapter thirty seven, you read about uh Joseph who endured temptation sexually when it was placed upon him by Potiphar's wife, and he came out the other side of it victorious. And you read the end of his story and you see what happened. You read Genesis chapter 38 and you see his brother Judah tempted in the same way, but he gives in to the temptation. And you see the end of what happened to Judah. And it's an incredible example for us of these things that James is saying. He's saying, listen, sin, when it is brought forth to its conclusion, always brings forth death. Understand that. So you say, well then what am I to do when trial and temptation come? Verse 16. James is very clear. This is called clarity. He says, do not err, my beloved brethren. Resist it. It's not worth it. He says, Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Listen, understand this, that what you're feeling and going through in the trials of your life right now, that those things are the byproduct of God's goodness towards you. He's good. He's the Father of light. Light gives direction. He's the father of good things and good gifts that he's seeking to bring forth within your life. And understand this, that with him, there is no variableness, neither is there shadow of turning. And here's what that means. It means that when God has a purpose and a pursuit and an aim that he's seeking to bring forth within your life, he's not gonna change his mind concerning it. And so if there's a trial in your life That trial is designed by God to an end and God is relentlessly going to bring forth that end within your life and know this, that he is good and he doesn't apologize. No matter how severe or difficult that trial might seem or what it feels like, he is good and he's bringing forth good through it. He says, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. Open your ears, slow to speak and slow to wrath. When you're in the trial, open your ears and shut your mouth and don't get angry. James says, understand where it's coming from. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, practical, lay aside all filthiness And superfluity, that's a King James word that just means overflow, superfluid, means it's overflowing, there's superabundance of it. The superfluity of naughtiness or wickedness. And receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Listen, if you're in a trial here tonight, he's telling us don't give in to the temptation that's that's coming uh, along with that trial to, to, to let the pressure release valve Uh, loose. He says, also, understand the perspective that God is good in the middle of the trial. No matter how severe that trial is, God is good in the middle of it and He's got a purpose that is good. Also, shut, shut up. Shh, shh, shh. Do you hear that? Bear it. Endure before God. Swift to hear. Slow to speak slow to wrath. It hurts, he knows it, but be patient in the whole thing. And then he says, and lay aside the wickedness. Don't give in to it, but put it aside. Put it out of your life and instead, receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. You know one of the things that makes me marvel is when I watch people go through a trial, when I watch people go through difficult things, it's it's a funny thing, but the tendency is that attendance to the Word of God decreases. When pressure is on, you see people less in church. They, they read their Bibles less. They they It's almost like they think they need to get a grip somewhere else. What James is saying, no, 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 no. The opposite. When you're in it, fill yourself with the Word of God. Constantly. Receive the Word constantly. But not just hearing it. He said, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, then he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror, but then beholding himself and he goes away and straightway he forgets the manner of man that he was. But whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, This man will be blessed in his deed. In other words, it's not enough just to say, okay, I attended church, I read my chapter in the Bible. He's saying, listen, approach the word of God with the mentality and the mindset that I want to be a doer of the things that God has told me to do in his word. We're going to stop there tonight because it kind of breaks theme. He moves on to talk about the tongue in the next verse. It couples well with the next chapter. So we'll move on. But as we close, and uh, the musicians can come as we do, um, what James says to us tonight is that a living faith, and that's what this is all about. It's about having a living faith. That a living faith is evidenced, first of all, by the active resisting of temptations and letting the refining process of a trial perform its perfect work within your life. There is only one self-improvement program in this entire world that actually works. I mean, of the thousands and thousands of books that are written and the volumes and the series and the tapes and the courses that people take to improve themselves, and they spend millions and millions of dollars seeking to do these things. There is only one self-improvement program that works in the entire universe. You know what it is? It's to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and then endure the trials that he brings to you during your time here on earth. That's the only thing that will ever change you. It's refining the finding pot for silver and the furnace for gold, it's the Lord who tries the hearts. There's no other way. It's funny, this is the time of year when people make New Year's resolutions. And you can't go these days more than a day without hearing somewhere "Well, the top five are this and the top and the number six, quit smoking, used to be number one, now it's number whatever. And then it's going to read a book, I'm going to exercise, I'm going to lose weight. And you, know, and you hear all these resolutions and things that are, are going to do. Can I give you the one New Year's resolution that is absolutely guaranteed to make you a better person one year from now than you are today. And here's what it is. It's to give your life in complete and total surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ and then embrace every trial and difficulty that he brings across your life this year. And if you do that, you will be a different person at the end of this year for the better guaranteed. It works every time. And James tells us that a living faith, an active faith, embraces the trials that come its way. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for your word. We thank you for its purity. We thank you for the truth of it. Thank you that you don't hide us from ourselves. And we thank you that our hearts aren't hidden from you. We thank you that you see everything that's in us to the very core. You see every weakness, every vulnerability, You see every flaw, every sin, every hidden thing. And we thank you, Lord, that you're relentless in your pursuit to take out those things that are of no value and to refine us like pure gold. And as we sit here tonight, oh God, we're so familiar with our faults. We're so helpless in the face of them to do anything about it. But we so desire to be changed. And we so desire to be more than just those that profess To have a faith in God, but it looks so empty in our lives. And so Lord, even now, right now, Lord, as we sit here, the Word of God, having just searched our hearts, we would ask you, Father, that you would do whatever is necessary in our lives. That we might know the rejoicing of what it means to feel heat without pain. And what it means to have the crown of life. And to see what you're appearing without shame. And so, Lord, take each one of us. Take all that we are. Take all that we have. Take what we profess to be faith. Breathe on it and make it real. Take everything in us that's empty and dead and breathe on it and revive it and make it new and give us life. And, Father, may this be a time when we don't play church or live upon a false profession or have a form of godliness but deny its power. But God, that we might know the reality of the true and living God alive in our hearts. Baptize us, O God, with your fire, your refining fire. And do your will within us. I would just invite you as we sing this last song tonight. Maybe you're here and there's just something that you need to lay at the altar. Maybe you need to just surrender all to Jesus. and Say, Lord, I want to live all for you. Or maybe there's a pressure release switch that you need to just take that button and bring it up to the altar and say, God, would you just take this out of my hand because it's too strong for me? As we sing this song, we don't have to make a big deal of it, but if you want to come to the altar and just lay it down right here on one of these steps and spend a moment and then just return to your seat, we won't drag it out long, draw attention to it. But just as a chance to say, God, I want you in my life. I want your work in my life. I want to be real. I want it to be genuine. I want it to be sincere.